If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Recording. Recording. Okay, well, so far this is working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, now great. that see the Zoom gods are trying to push us back together. They're like, technology yes. hates you. Just be in the same room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what's happening. Oh, Courtney, tell us about this delicious drink that we're drinking. Oh, yes. It's something like the spring fling. <laughs> it I is, like it. It's strawberry puree with saint germain vodka lemon juice and topped with prosecco and uh strawberry slices and mint oh and i did add some simple syrup because i don't really like saint germain but i know you both do so it was a little herbally for me and it's not it's not really sweet so even with the simple Mm -hmm. syrup i don't know what it would have tasted like without it you know it's just half an ounce so Mm -hmm. it wasn't like i put a lot in there half an ounce so it has uh yeah i like it it's a little bubbly I think the mint muddled in it might have been a little better, like muddle in it in the puree. Mm. Yeah, I'm not getting much mint, but yes, it's it's like one of those drinks that you want to like drink while you're in your float in your pool that we don't have. It needs an umbrella. Umbrella. It needs a little fancy umbrella on it. Mm Yeah, we were all talking. We were all (laughs) talking about how much we need a pool. (laughs) If anybody. Would like to donate one. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon. Patreon. And we get for like the a pool. little three by we four. We promise that's not pool. what we use the Patreon for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's about it. And if we did oh. that, Jen would have to go without payment for a month. <laughs> so, no, Jen, no that ain't gonna to work. She's too valuable, and she's, she's too valuable. doing us a favor because she doesn't she's, charge much. She's totally um, I have the best her. sunny flat space for a pool. You do there have you. a sunny flat space, but it needs to be sunny and flat and <laughs> with a pool on it. I know. <laughs> That's why we need this Patreon. <laughs> We're gonna oh, start that on, fundraiser right now. Deep. I know. Go fund oh me the Please. Strange South float. For <laughs> You're both wearing your Strange South shirts. Yes. So comfy. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love my shirt. The original. This is oh, the original geez. run. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've yes. tossed around the idea of doing a second run of this original t-shirt design. So if anybody Absolutely. remembers how amazing this original t-shirt design is, which you'll see. I mean, it's, you know, it. it's on the website and everything too, but it's it was the first one that we did and we've had people specifically ask us for this one too even they've all right. been super cool but yeah this right. one we may have to to do this one we, it's super we will fun. we will do that <clears throat> i've been kind of waiting until we um are somewhat normal <laughs> have time <laughs> have time to that's never we've been a mess this week that's all i gotta say it's been a mess but we're here it's been a mess and patrice and i 
introduced our children to Dungeons and Dragons, or actually, yes, Patrice's son probably introduced all of us to Dungeons and Dragons, but <laughs> we had fun. So yes, yeah, we're we are fisting to like hard hardcore D and D it pretty soon. I'm excited. I've been studying up. <laughs> See, you have to Damn. study up because you're the dungeon master. You've got to know yes. your shit. True, okay. but I also like the idea that uh, there is a lot of ad-libbing mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a not hardcore rule. So as long as I can fake it, I mm-hmm. think we'll be good. The problem is we have very intelligent children. <laughs> <laughs> that it's going to be hard to pull one they over. know everything. I was going to say, they at do. least two of those children will probably have researched everything about everything oh. by the time we start. So yes. they'll be like, no, 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 that's not what it says in this resource. Yes. Yes, exactly. You're, Mom, you're doing it wrong. If y'all have any tips for D&D playing with kids, let us know. Yes, absolutely. And Max was even like, he had a really fun time when we got together and was fleshing and we're fleshing out our characters. But he also kind of threw in there. He's like, yeah, it'd be really great. It's just like me, Abby and Coco. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't want us involved. I'm the comic relief. We agreed on this. <laughs> Marlea has like the best character of all. She just like amazing character and she has a steep. It's just so much dirty pony. Dirty, dirty pony. pony. Yeah, we'll t- we can talk about that in the after show. We can yes. talk about my dirty pony. But your children um, told me yesterday that that you were going to arrest them all the time. I don't know what yes, that means, but they said mom said that we're she's going to arrest us all the time. Well, that's because when you, you give children an option for their alignment between like chaotic evil, like good chaotic, good lawful, like all these things, oh, and yeah, all I've three of the children. Evil have chosen chaotic something i am the only lawful good character in this campaign so i'm like i'm just gonna have to like arrest you every five minutes (laughs) learn more about our DD adventures subscribe (laughs) to the patreon and And our new DD podcast (laughs) oh my god Oh my God. We just set up a microphone while we play and see what comes out. Yes. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's see. Where are we this week? Am I first or are you first? I'm, I think I might be first. You may be first. What was Which is last? Good because, because what? No, nothing. Because I'm prepared. <laughs> Have you not? Oh, because she not got doesn't a story. have a story, and she's going to think of it while <laughs> you you're going to put it together story. while we. I'm going to practice my D and D skills here. <laughs> Improvise. 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 Let's see. I did. Yeah, because I did the cult of Yahweh Ben Yahweh, and you did Phoenix City last yes. time. Yeah. So Sin you started. City. You started. Yes. So okay. So this is mine. I was honestly trying to find a lot more ghosts. I'll I'll cover some ghosts related to this story in the after talk, but you have to go through the historical madness part of it before you can get to the ghost part and it's just too long i mean i honestly probably could have done two separate podcasts on it but i'm gonna try and not make it super long so So if um, you need to do like two podcasts i'm actually thinking of doing two podcasts on one that i I have as well is it we've never done that before no but we make the rules we do and it's a good idea because i was just like you know there are a couple different lines that play into this anyways okay but 
this is going to be a West Virginia story. West Virginia. We haven't done a whole lot of West Virginia. My whole uh, like, no. my whole thing was like, okay, North Carolina and West Virginia and Arkansas. I feel like sometimes Arkansas gets on the low list. So I was trying to find some for those. This story is called Operation Ice Pick. Before I get really into the story, it's there's a lot of mental health stuff in this story. And it's maybe that's one of the reasons why it was like resonating for me to do it this week. Excuse me. Whoa, that was a burp. And uh, in all seriousness, <laughs> but for real, if you, it's we, one of the things that we've said back and forth a couple times this week is if you don't think that you're suffering from mental health issues right now and you live in the world, you're probably wrong. Right. So, you know, really be aware of things that are going on. Because, you know, what, Courtney, you had an issue. I was yeah. proven wrong this week. You were proven wrong? Yeah, I thought I wasn't having some anxiety issues, but I had to go into an in-person meeting with about 30-something people for the first time in a year. I've presented to hundreds of people hundreds of times over 20 years, and I something happened to me when I started talking in front of them, and like... I couldn't catch my breath and my voice was shaking and oh, I felt no. my head was spinning and I've never, I've had it, you know, I've been nervous about speaking, but it was, this was like, I couldn't control it. And it seemed like uh, I couldn't catch my breath. It was really high up and tight chest. So, and I knew every one of these people, I know them very well. So it wasn't like even people that I should be afraid of. I just haven't been in front of that many people in so long. Right. I'm used to seeing them on Zoom mood meetings and talking and, you know, but uh turned around face-to-face -face with masks covering their facial expressions too, mm -hmm. which is really a cue in on nonverbal behaviors. And so I found that difficult. It felt like everybody was just like blank staring at me, you know? Mm -hmm. like, well, I also okay. feel like those of us who have taken this pandemic seriously, sorry to derail or tangent. No, this isn't derail. Story. This is like okay. an important thing to say. <laughs> but I feel like we have been through this trauma that we haven't addressed yet. And so when you're thrown back into a somewhat normal situation, we cannot process it. Like we haven't been through that gentle easing back in. It's like you're thrusted back in and it's like, okay, I'm supposed to act this way. I'm supposed to do this way. But I don't think a lot of us have addressed how traumatized we have been from this mm -hmm. lack of socialization from all of this past year and all the the, the political fuckery that has been mm -hmm. going on i went out for the first time to a social thing that, that i haven't been to in over like a year and a half i went to like an opening of a show for one of our students and at any point in time I could have like bursted out into tears like mm -hmm. at any point in time just simply because I'm like I am overwhelmed right now with all of the stress from this past year of not seeing these people and not being around these people it was it was very it was yeah I, I was feeling it big time and like presenting in front of people I, I don't think I could have done it and even those of us who are introverts and who you know I mean I made jokes at the beginning of this so I was like wow the world just gave me like my heaven like right? I'm not expected yeah, to be I'm with people introvert. are you kidding yeah. me like this is the best thing and I I spent the whole year basically saying like my kids and I are fine you know we're good but we weren't and we aren't and none of us are. And no. so, you know, this is just, I figured it would make sense to just take a moment and say, you know, we're all in the same boat and, you know, check yourself a little bit, you know, give yourself a little grace, check yourself and check on your kids, man. You know, even if you think they're fine, 
they're probably not fine either. I hate to I tell you that, but um, there's no stigmatization of treatment in this group of people because we all know what that feels like. We all know what it is. I just figured I would take a second and plug, like there are lots of online options for people. Even if you don't have insurance, there's, you could do better help. You could do talk space, national suicide prevention lifeline, like you know, be aware of the resources that you have. So before I talked about anything mental health, I just wanted to say that the, uh, so the story is a mental, mental hospital story, which there aren't that many of these to be found anymore. But so in West Virginia, there were a number of mental hospitals from like the, the close of the civil war and on. And the, the background of this, there was one in particular, there was the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is what they used to call them. And, you know, right the early 1800s and mid 1800s eventually just called it weston it was built by a quaker man named kirkbride to be a, it was a bastion of mental health reform um so it was based on i feel like it was like a european ideal of quote unquote moral treatment so you know going from dickensian like people being in you know bedlams and you know, places where folks were just chained to walls and mistreated. And they were um, kind of looking at mental health as an emotional driven issue or emotionally triggered issue. And so they were, the, the building was built as a place that was going to be pastoral. It was going to be private. It was more, um, it was more for calm mindfulness, you know, that kind of healing in the in the environment so it was this massive beautiful stone building sprawling facility had like a working farm on it it was built to be self-sustaining so that they would like had there was a factory where they could like make not a factory but there was like a place where people could work to make their own clothes it was basically set up so that the people who were patients there and residents there would have jobs and purpose and um activities um and they would tend the farm. There were walking paths. There were parks everywhere. Um, so it was supposed to be like a nurturing environment. And it was meant to hold 250 patients. And if you could see this place, I mean, <laughs> it's this massive place. And there was supposed to be one attendant for every six patients. Um, they originally, when they built it, restraints were only supposed to be used for violent patients at risk of suicide. Like restraints were like an absolute last ditch. Like, and... Um, so it opened after a long building period. It opened kind of, I think, 1880s, 1890s, like turn of the century. And it was just pictures of it. And I'll share some in the in the show notes. Pictures of it were just absolutely gorgeous inside. Right. Too, that was were, like the day of like mental health care asylums like that. That makes um, sense. Like when people were saying like, you need to take fresh air to heal and you need, mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, they had like billiards rooms in this place. They had like game rooms. They're beautiful wood floors. They did dances for patients. Like they had entertain. Like part of the part of your job, if you worked there, was to provide entertainment and distraction for the people who are patients there. So it's beautiful furniture. Um, they had patients when they opened up from like age eight to age ninety three, and there were a lot of different like dementia was one of the. Um, one of the reasons people might be there mania was listed as one of the reasons Two, this is interesting two common afflictions of people who were admitted at that time menstruation <laughs> like problems with menstruation like female problems oh. 
and <laughs> masturbation. Major problem. Masturbation was a really common reason for people to get admitted into psychiatric facilities. Very natural thing. Exactly. That everybody was trying to repress. Yes. So this is one of those. But you know, so it was generally assumed. You think about like all this. It's almost like an opulent like atmosphere that they built here. So they generally assumed that the people who are going to be coming into this West Virginia facility are the, what they call them, the recently insane. Um, people who had had, exactly, people who had had like situational or behavioral triggers that kind of kicked off what they would consider their mental illness here. Like um, a pandemic. Seriously, we all. <laughs> you know what, if somebody Your would motherhood. set me up in a 66 acre, you know, resort, I'd be all about it right yeah, now. Billiards oh. room. <laughs> yeah, billiards room. Really? And I will say that um, many thanks to uh, Kim Jacks at West Virginia University for her grad thesis on Weston State Hospital, because most of my information on that hospital comes from her. And it is stellar. Great work, Kim. But um, so when they so they open up this place for folks who are, you know, they feel like are having these kind of recent insanity triggers. Right. But they start immediately getting chronic cases, lots of chronic cases. And um, the hospitals, the psychiatric hospitals at the time had absolutely no effective way to treat chronic cases, what they called chronic cases of mental illness. Um, and, and the rest and relaxation, calm, mindfulness, you know, a caring, nurturing environment, those things would be helpful in a lot of these situations. But unfortunately, when you're in a facility that's built for a cap of 250 people and they blow the lid off that cap, like practically on day one. Because there's like everybody needs mental health. Yes. And it sounds to me like they, they were throwing in maybe the more serious mental health cases with the masturbators. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> everybody just gets tossed in there with the masturbators. Um, and, you know, so, you know, we've just gone through the civil war when they're in the midst of building this facility. Right. And, you know, we're in the, the, you know, Jim Crow, we're in, there's a whole lot of stressors, you know, reconstruction there. I mean, there's a lot of stressors in the nation and this, there's also like a continuing boom in admissions to this place through the first half of the 20th century. So it, a lot of people say it was like, because of population growth. Um, but eh, that's a eh, meh urbanization was one because um you know people weren't as willing to care for ill family members at home like you're you're in close with other people you're not like out on a farm where you can kind of hide grandma you know what i mean um and so um there was also a broader definition of mental illness that started to happen at this time and so the, what about like you know uh world war one Exactly. The and then Depression. there was world. Yes. World and then two. all kinds. I mean, huge, huge I events mean, that impacted PTSD and the mental health. Yes. And the world war two was a, a huge one. And that comes up a little bit later. And, you know, also like the community, like the, the medical community kind of started successfully marketing some um, mental health issues as curable. And so people were like, okay, well, we can send them these places or look at this wonderful place. It's sprawling. It's beautiful. It's self-sustaining. We can send people here and there's not as much stigma for us to do it. And it gets them out of our house and, you know, all this stuff. So there was a lot of things like playing into this boom, but um, 
so in uh, 1927, an inquiry into the death of a patient at Weston Hospital reveals that there were three physicians there for 1,300 patients. Oh, my God. There were three attendants for every 65 patients. The question was if the woman had died as a result of restraints because of all the bruising on her body. Um, other common treatments at this time included submerging troubled patients in cold water for up to 10 hours at a time. Um, I mean, they were, they were trying. I knew they, when you said one, whatever, staff to six patients, that was yeah. like a pop dream. Oh yeah. Like that doesn't oh, even happen today. It doesn't happen. It's and and part of the thing that they, they had like, no, they had very little funding and they had few resources. So they were built. And I, I really couldn't get a good understanding of what the financial difference was between like when they were built and when they started being filled, because, you know, it's, this is one of the nation's poorest States, West Virginia at the time. Right. And I think still, and um, this kind of facility would strain resources for, and, and a mental health crises of the time would strain resources for even the richer States. And, right. um, so, you know, and you know that the state is committing a lot of these patients, right? Like these are wards of the state that are being sent into places. So, right. you know, but um, so in the 40s, like like Courtney just said, like a, a whole new swell of patients came because soldiers were coming home from World War II with PTSD, among other things. And um, so they, hospitals like West and in West Virginia, and I'm sure across the country started seeing more schizophrenia, bipolar, um, mental illnesses from drug addiction and alcohol addiction. So now Weston in the forties has more than 2000 patients, this building that was built for 250. So there was a Charleston Gazette reporter, Scott Finn, who said that the hospital served as a dumping ground for unwanted people. And, um, he said that the fact that the state legislatures did not allocate enough funds to adequately care for the patients in the facility resulted in tragic neglect and the most unfortunate citizens in West Virginia. And this wasn't just at Western Hospital. There was a Spencer Hospital. Lakin was one of the only hospitals in the country that was, it was quote unquote, the colored people's mental hospital. This mm -hmm. was, um, Lakin facility was specifically for African-Americans, but was one of the only ones that was staffed also by only African-Americans. So it actually, in West Virginia, Lakin Hospital was a proving ground for um, black doctors who would really have no opportunity to practice with psychiatric patients in any other facility. So, you know, they, they were also woefully underfunded. <laughs> so, I mean, take the good with the bad, that's, a, that's shit. But, um, so there was Spencer, Lakin, Huntington, Weston, lots of these facilities, and they were all having the same problem. There were 1,200 patients in Spencer in the 1950s. Most of them were unwanted individuals. A lot of them were children. Um, and at Spencer, they were cared for by three doctors also, 1,200 patients. Um, so in 1949 in West Virginia, there's an expose um, in the Charleston Gazette, which is a local paper, um, Charleston, West Virginia. And it's on the patient treatment of um, West Virginia Mental Hospital. So they went to all these different hospitals and um, it, this writer, Charlie Armentrout, just, just <laughs> destroyed them all in print. Um, Huntington Hospital, he found children with bare feet and hair clipped and canvas clothes just to make it easier to clean them when they soiled themselves because no one was watching them most of the time. Um, so uh, they would have ringworm, they had scabies, they had TB outbreaks at a number of these hospitals that were completely uncared for, um, nine to 10 patients to a room. Um, oh 
criminally insane patients left to roam the halls of the ward with nothing to do, like no, no structured activity, no structured schedule, female patients that were naked strapped to chairs. No supervision. I mean, like there was an entire room in one of these hospitals where they were just naked women strapped in chairs. It was insane. There was no occupational therapy. The staff was paid $90 a month for 12 hour daily shifts. And he said that cows at these places that had farms like Weston got better treatment than patients because there were more regulations on how you could treat cows. He said, uh, Armentrout in one of his articles famously said, you have to be really insane to become a ward of the state in West Virginia. So similar exposés in the 40s are appearing across the country in bigger magazines. Life magazine did one about Pennsylvania and Ohio hospitals. In 1946, Cosmo did the same. Cosmopolitan did an expose. I didn't know they did that in 1948. Um, So it's on the public's mind all of a sudden how horrible some of these places are. And the state legislature in West Virginia is being pressured by citizens and the church now to change the way that things are being run in mental hospitals. And they have to do it fast. So one newspaper has called the mental hospitals the shame of West Virginia. And they're just like, okay, we've got to do something about this. But there's not a lot of promising treatments for these folks. And like we said, there are more and more cases of mental health issues because of all the shit that's gone down in the first half of the 20th century. Um, But electroshock therapy came out in the 30s. And so there was more of that in all of these places, but, you know, psychiatric drugs didn't come out until the fifties. So we're in this kind of nasty place where it's like, they all feel like they're kind of on the verge of being able to help, but they just can't do a lot and they don't have any resources. So in, in the middle of this, there comes this new procedure that brings some hope to these doctors who are completely beleaguered staff who just can't deal with things anymore, families who feel like they just, they can't take it in West Virginia and across the country. And I know where you're I going think I know this. what this is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So electroshock therapy came up because they changed the way that they thought about mental health. They started thinking, okay, well, this is obviously a physical issue with the brain. And electroshock therapy rerouted the circuitry in your brain And they figured this solved the problem because patients who had electroshock therapy became subdued and compliant. So they considered it successful, which is not what success means. It's still being used in places in case you don't know. Uh, I like it's different than that there, but yes, it is for different cases. Yeah. Yeah. There was a neurologist at George Washington University named Walter Freeman. And he, he actually really did start with seeing the straight that mental patients were in and being unhappy with the fact that overcrowding the treatment and all that kind of stuff. And he wanted, he did really want to do something about it. It seems like he came from a family of neurologists. His grandfather was the first person who removed a brain tumor. Um, and he wanted to be a great man like the rest of his family. Right. So, and it honestly, it reminds me of goat glands guy <laughs> to a certain extent. I don't know if y'all remember the guy who like, you know, did the goat nuts thing. <laughs> but, the goat nuts? <laughs> yeah, you remember the goat nuts guy? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the doctor who put goat nuts in men's ball sacks. Yes, wow. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I said ball sack. Um, I don't know why it reminded me of that. So, Walter Freeman, he's like, he's gone to the morgues of mental hospitals and done research on the brains of patients who have passed and he really didn't find anything to show that there was any physical difference between mental 
patients and people who weren't being treated in a mental hospital. Um, but he still really, really believed that, you know, the kinds of treatments that just looked at physicality were the ones that would fix everything. Um, so he learns about this Portuguese doctor who's doing a new procedure called the lobotomy. And um, in this Portuguese doctor's lobotomies, he would remove core sections of patient's frontal lobes and it would change the patient's, I don't know, everything it would change their personality. It would change, you know, so they basically drilled holes in their skull, took parts out and then handed the people back. And um, Freeman's like, we've got to start doing this here. We're in a mental health crisis. And so he doesn't have certification to do brain surgery in the United States. So he hires a neurosurgeon, a young man named James Watts to work for him. And in their first procedure, they have like a 63-year-old woman who had been suffering from insomnia, anxiety, depression, who was probably on the verge of being institutionalized by her family. And they bring her in and he's like, okay, I'm going to try this on her. So in September, 1936, Watts operates and does a lobotomy on this woman. And basically Watts is just the hands and Freeman sits on a chair six feet away and tells him, you know, go left, go right, do this. And he also does something different than this Portuguese doctor who, who started this process. He, he told Watts, instead of taking cores out of the frontal lobe, like, like the other doctor did, we're going to cut the nerves between the frontal lobe and the thalamus and the thalamus he is like, he considers the thalamus the seat of human emotion um, and said, well, this is obviously the cause of the problem. Your emotions are out of whack. So we just chop this, this little, this little cord, and then your brain won't respond to these out of whack emotions and then you'll be okay. Um, so he, he did the surgery, the patient recovered. Um, she was calm, compliant, didn't seem to have the same kinds of issues that she had had. And so they considered this a success. Um, so he does more procedures. And after about a dozen patients, he announces at a medical conference that he has cured medical mental illness. Um, his Boston medical conference with all these doctors. And there's so many of these doctors are just incensed by what he has said but he knows nobody else is going to hear about this because doctors don't talk against doctors in this time. Like it's, it's unethical. And so he's like, well, unless you read medical journals and nobody's going to talk about me in the medical journals, nobody's going to know that everybody else thinks this is a crackpot, stupid idea. And so, um, you know, I can just keep doing it. So in order to get support for it, he bypasses medical channels of like, you know, normally you do like peer reviewed articles and stuff like that. He just goes straight to the press. This also reminds me of the goat glands doctor. He's all about just getting the press in there with them. So he decides to market the surgery in the press and they eat it up and people come straight to him with their, mm -hmm. their family members who, you know, need help. So some of them got lobotomies through Freeman. Um, some of them as a result of those became disabled and required full-time care for the rest of their lives. Um, Freeman just kind of kept on going. Some people died. Um, some people lost their long-term memory. Some had the same behavioral issues, but just became very immature. Um, some started, started out better, but then started relapsing after a couple of months, he would redo the surgery up to three times on the same patient. Oh if it didn't stick the first time, um, he considered success when this person was no longer agitated or troubling to other people. 
Um, so they generally became like children. Some of them had to learn toilet training again. Some of them had limited mobility, but the public by and large isn't seeing these cases. Freeman is in the press's face all the time. And a lot of these families, like they really are beside themselves. They don't know what to do with these family members. So when they get this person back who is docile and compliant, even if, you know, they have to teach them how to use the toilet, they, they're just really over the moon about it because they feel like they at least can have this family member. So it's not like we're talking a bunch of villains who are like tossing their families to this guy. It's like people really don't feel like they have options and they don't know what to do. So these exposés in 1949 start coming out about these mental hospitals, including the series on the West Virginia mental hospitals and Charleston Gazette. And people start wondering, is the lobotomy the answer to this problem of overcrowding of these mental hospitals? Can we fix these people is what they're thinking, right? Fix, quote unquote. And Freeman thinks that this is the way we can solve these problems. But it's really hard to do this operation because you have to have a surgeon and an operating room and an anesthetist and a lot of money. And he wants to do these things really fast because, you know, he just, there's so many patients, there's so little time. So he wants to find a way to do this with no anesthesia, no specialists, no operating room. And so he, he figures out this thing. He said, if you render a patient unconscious with shock therapy, so you give them electroshocks, which you can do like up to up to like eight times until the person, until a full grown adult will become unconscious. Then you pull back their eyelids and you insert a sharp, thin instrument into the orbital cavity above their eyeball. And, um, and honestly, when he was trying to figure this out, he was looking for an instrument. He actually pulled an honest to God ice pick out of his own kitchen drawer to use it. And it, and it worked fine. Then you use a, a hammer to push the instrument up into the brain and just move it back and forth. And one of the guys said, like a windshield wiper and pull up abruptly. One of the guys, and this was, there was a, um, an American experience on PBS that covered a lot of this stuff and had a lot of interviews. So I got a lot of this information from them. One of the guys talked about like it being like popping a champagne cork. You'd pull it up and you sever the nerves between the thalamus and the frontal lobe, and then you withdraw. And it takes less than 15 minutes to do the entire thing. And Freeman just starts doing this on patients in his office himself with no oversight and no training. And Dr. Watts, who was a surgeon who had helped him do the, the lobotomies, a la the Portuguese guy, he, um, he walked in on Freeman doing this in his office. He walked in one day and there was a patient laying on a table in his office with ice picks coming out of both eyes. And Freeman so turned around to him and said, hey, can you take a picture of this? Oh and God. Watts just turned around and walked out and quit. But Freeman is like, well, it does the same thing. This, you know, if it works the way it should, it really should. And it does the same thing as these full on lobotomies. So he starts going to state hospitals across the nation in the mid forties and training hospital administrators and staff to give this treatment. And he oh always, God. every time he does it, he invites press and photographers to be in the room while he does the procedures and trains and he would do up to 25 people a day he would do oh it left-handed just to shock the reporters that were in the room and I mean, that's just not shocking enough right? right i know but doctors really they you know the state that that their facilities are in and the amount of stress and pressure that they're under that you know they have no resources they have no hope so they're like bring it we're doing this bring it anything that can help do it 
And so in 1945, there were 140, 150 lobotomies performed in the U.S. In 1949, there were more than 5,000. And West Virginia had the highest per capita rate of lobotomy in the nation. Um, Freeman visited those hospitals in West Virginia on the regular. And um, by the early 1950s, he was like on the, he was just like ready to do it to anybody. Like it, you know, walk into his office. He's like, all right, lobotomy for you. Like he's on it, ready to go consent or not, whatever. And there's, you know, a lot of these were wards of the state. So there was no requirement for informed consent really anyways, they were lifers. And um, so he's like, I'm going to go to the West Virginia state board of control. He's already on good terms with the state hospital administrators, because like I said, highest rate in the nation, but he wants more out of them. And he's like, we could do mass lobotomies with state sanction. And we're going to try and start this out in West Virginia because he says, I can solve your, your resource and your PR problems from all these exposés in one blow. And so in July, 1952, he starts the West Virginia lobotomy project, which some newspapers called operation ice pick the state board of control, which was in charge of mental hospitals gave Freeman permission to make unannounced drop-ins at mental hospitals across the state to train staff on how to do lobotomies on a mass scale. And it was the first state that he had approached about this and the first state to do it. So all of these hospitals are running on empty and the state's basically threatening to shut them down. So he he's coming in, he's like a savior to them. And um, so they figure at this point, it's gone from Lobotomy is not to heal the person. Lobotomy is to save the resources. We're trying to get the state out from under the financial burden of their care. So, you know, the lobotomy is really just about sending them home. You know, it's not about the patient. It's about right. the state. And so in 30 days, in July of 1952, he operated on 238 patients in West Virginia, 50 at Lakin. That was the, the hospital, quote unquote, for the colored insane, 66 at Spencer, 103 at Weston, 55 at Huntington, and eight at Barbersville. And the superintendent at Spencer at the time was Thomas Knapp. And um, he said he remembered Freeman was there one day. He forgot the surgical hammer that he used to pound the spikes into the brain. And they just, he just went into the kitchen and found a wooden mallet and used that. Like it was so skeevy. The way that I thought he did you were supposed to say he took his shoe off and used his shoe. Right. I mean, just think about it. Let's just shove it up in there with no x-ray yeah. or MRI or anything no. and then just go. I know. Sounds good. Exactly. And, you know, you wouldn't do this to people that there was somebody standing there who cared about them. Right. I mean, like it's I think. Oh, I don't know. The stories I know of lobotomy people brought their family members in and stood there and watched them they in the office in. yeah the ones in the yeah. you're right the ones in the office because there is a famous they story of a very young boy who had it housewives done. yep mm -hmm. exactly and then just unruly children there yeah there's an npr story on the uh somebody who's still alive uh he was like 12 and oh it's howard deal i think is his name howard something yeah yeah something and Julie. Do maybe it's Dooley. He, um, yeah, like because that. it kind of transitions into that after yeah. this whole mental hospital blitz that he goes maybe. on. Yeah. Um, okay. and so after this, like after this operation ice pick in West Virginia, he Freeman told people, okay, so there were 20, 228 patients. He said 86 were discharged. 
five returned. He said 36 more were ready to go home as soon as their families could take them. 29 have showed improvement of the 77 remaining. 73 have shown no improvement and four have died. So he, you know, he considers this like the majority of them have shown some improvement. But Thomas Knapp, who was the superintendent, said that if long-term follow-up had been done on any of these patients, the number of who had actually improved would be zero. Right. And in the mid-50s, they finally did get long-term stories, long-term studies of lobotomy. And they started to come out in medical journals, and they were talking about people who were in vegetative states, who had managed to go home from institutions, but they couldn't keep jobs because they just didn't have any sense of motivation or purpose. And they couldn't access that because of what had been done to them. Right. Um, people who were reinstitutionalized, people who were disabled, people, I mean, basically one of the quotes I found was destroying the brain is not restoring the patient. Right. Um, so he responded to criticisms of these things by saying, well, you know, what do you recommend? What do you have that's better than this? What can you do to help them? And unfortunately, in the late 40s, early 50s, there was no good answer to that. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he still cited through all this time, like the high rate of suicide from anguish that's caused by mental illness in people who are suffering. And he's not wrong. You know, he, he saw how just how horrible people felt when they were suffering with, with mental illness at home. And he felt like he was doing something to ease this pain. And it's kind of a matter of what trade-off you think is reasonable. Because at that point, there was nothing else that could be done in his eyes for people. Um, you know, I think maybe resources and actual help would have been something. Right. You know, and, I mean, if they had right. actually invested in people and had more than like four doctors for like 5,000 people. Exactly. Right. Um, so need to be yeah. an investment by the community and the state for mm -hmm. something to happen. And Absolutely. I think that, that was it is that the community was just trying to hide mm -hmm. because they were ashamed and, you know, didn't know what to do, had no resources themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But totally different era. I mean, totally different way of thinking back then. Than yeah. Now. And in 54, you know, it's like kind of almost the introduction to our era in a way Thorazine comes out in 1954, which was originally marketed as a chemical lobotomy. Um, that was the way that they advertised it. Um, and a lot of psychiatric drugs came out in the mid fifties, people, as soon as there was another option, people turned against lobotomy with a vengeance well, because yeah. suddenly there is something else that can do I something, mean, you know, I'd rather take a pill than an ice pick any day. No kidding into your head. Gosh. So, um, he, so Freeman basically at that point, he moves on to unhappy housewives, like Courtney was saying, and hyperactive kids. He even lobotomized a four-year-old in the 50s. Um, he lobotomized 19 kids under the age of 18. And the story that you're talking about, the Howard Deal or Dooley, whatever his name was, he, um, he was one of those people. He spent his entire life trying to figure out what was wrong with him. Nobody ever talked to him about his lobotomy. But basically, his, his dad had married another woman, and the stepmother had not liked the way that he behaved. He was generally, I mean, it, anybody's estimation was that he was just kind of a troublesome little boy, but he was not unusual for a little boy. And they took him in and lobotomized him. Yeah. Like she was just like, I can't deal with him. And then when he wasn't a vegetable, she sent him away. 
like she wanted him to be yeah, a vegetable. She wanted him to come back drooling. And not it was messed anything. up. That is how where I li- I heard the NPR podcast recently, or mm. like a, a replay of an old one. They did a story core with him, I think, too. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. in in 1967, Freeman had done 2,900 lobotomies himself. In Berkeley, California, February of that year, a patient died of a brain hemorrhage while he was operating. And so he was stripped of hospital privileges. And immediately after that, he retired. So that is the end of the the reign of Walter Freeman and Operation Ice Pick. I had no idea that West Virginia was like, seriously, like the highest per capita of lobotomies in the country. Every single one of these mental hospitals, unless I'm mistaken, pretty sure, has been torn down or abandoned. Um, in West Virginia, all the ones that we mentioned. And there are lots of talks of hauntings at um, at least two of those. So I'll, I don't have a ton. I don't have personal information about these, but I do have some little stories that I can share at the after talk about how those things turn out. Excellent. Oh my gosh. I didn't, I didn't know it like West, like you said, I don't know anything about West Virginia, but it makes, it makes sense because it seems like a poor state would have less oversight and thus it would be fertile grounds for mistreatment and for Mm -hmm. experimentation, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh my gosh. That is horrifying. Crazy. Do you want more Strange South every week? We can help. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast, to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community. Do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share? Email us at stories at thestrangesouth.com. Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, thestrangesouth.com, along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. That was fantastic, Morlea. I I love your storytelling. I am such a huge fan of your storytelling. And I really am so happy that you're doing this with me. (laughs) (laughs) I think that all the time. I'm so, I'm so happy, happy you asked me to <laughs> that you're doing this because you totally add legitimacy <laughs> to, to this podcast and just <laughs> lovely I'm just so happy I'm just that story was horrific but it just like your storytelling <laughs> makes me happy and on the other side of things um, what? What? what are so, you doing <laughs> exactly what am i doing episode 47 we talked about boojum and love (laughs) and we also talked about the east tennessee legends of the sticky dog long dog and the dog dog stories yes and in there where i don't remember where there i mentioned john merle so John Merle was a land pirate, um, which is funny that they call him land pirates because it kind of <laughs> reminds funny. me again of like the land shark. Of That's SNL all I could think of from 1975. <laughs> and if you're like, Gen X or earlier, uh, you know, it's like candy ground. So land pirates, just ridiculous mm-hmm. name to me. Anyway, so I <laughs> shark says. Shark Kansas. Shark Kansas. 
So today I'm going to do a little bit deeper dive, although not as deep as Merlea goes, into <laughs> John Merle and the legend of John Merle. And we are not talking about uh, the Alabama Secretary of State, uh, who oh. was a Republican, who's also named John Merle, who I found an interesting article called Sex Lies in the Alabama <laughs> Secretary oh, of State. Oh, <laughs> shit. Wow, wow. Yeah. And the yes. Alabama former governor Ooh. and the <laughs> I know yeah, right before them and him and <laughs> so it's uh it's a pretty uh, legendary name here but I came across this really lovely article from the Nashville scene which is a great little paper mm-hmm. this is by Betsy Phillips and really I want to contact her and have her write for me so that I will sound funny and hilarious because <laughs> she is funny and hilarious talking about this but she writes this article it's called the strange story behind the state thumb mm-hmm. and so I saw that and I'm like what supposedly once a year in Tennessee the Tennessee State Museum takes out this object and puts it on display in about like I think around October and it's not sky meat and it's not like <laughs> tobacco enemas or anything like that <laughs> whoa sky meat bringing it back raining meat (laughs) raining meat it is an actual mummified thumb and like i saw this and i was just thinking oh my god i love the south the state thumb there's there's there is a state thumb that gets put on display from this museum in nashville and it is it is like i love the south during moments (laughs) like these because there is nothing that is more fucked up in the south than a lot of the things that we talked about (laughs) (laughs) and it's just so strange like we talk about a lot of i mean we talk a lot about the horribleness that's you know part of the strangeness but like reading stuff like that just totally just brings me joy (laughs) so this happens around october i don't know the exact date i'm gonna have to find out the exact date and post it but allegedly this thumb belonged to john merle who is the land pirate and first of all why why is this a thing and who is john merle first of all besides being known as the great western land pirate which the western Hmm. part kind of like throws me off a little bit too because i'm like hello we're not the west we're the south (laughs) but this happened hardly west of anything or we're west of anything except i think they called it the west because during the time period that john merle was alive was in the early 1800s and so this was you know we were considered west of europe i guess or west (laughs) east coast i guess and i guess that's why they called us or called him you know great western land pirate land pirate land pirate but basically you know he was a bandit that supposedly worked along the mississippi river and we talked about river towns being places where illegal stuff happened and little coves that pirates came into and like a lot of illegal activity happened on the river but this guy john merle was born like 1806 in virginia but he actually grew up in Williamson County, Tennessee. And as a teen, you know, one thing that we do know about him as a fact is that he was branded with the letters HT when he was a teen because he was a horse thief. So he, you know, stole horses, got caught, uh, 
had to serve like six years in the prison for stealing horses and they branded him and they flogged him and sent him to prison. And you think, you know, he would learn his lesson, but later on he was caught for and convicted for stealing enslaved people and then reselling them to other plantation owners to other slave owners and that was kind of like his thing that's the thing that he was known for so he wasn't a good person he no high morals he was a thief and he got Mm. caught a lot and the second time that he got (laughs) sent to prison (laughs) yeah the second time he got sent to prison it was in like around nashville and they used and i found this out they used this it's called the auburn penitentiary system and it's a highly regimented system they wear uniforms it's kind of if you think of prison oh brother where art thou you know kind of thing Mm. with the work camps Mm -hmm. and stuff so it's highly regimented they do lockstep which lockstep is a close marching where like one prisoner has his right arm on the other prisoner and the thing is is when they move forward your foot's supposed to go into the foot that the person in front of you was supposed to go into sort of like the chain gang kind of thing where they're so no chains so close together mm-hmm. that it's very limited movement. They would practice this with or without the chains and kind of slight tangent here, this lot step that they used to control prisoners and to keep them in groups and orderly was also used for Hitler's youth. So Hitler's youth used lockstep mm. when they marched as well. You know, it was very regimented, very strict. There was silence and a lot of times solitary confinement uh, were enforced. And it said that solitary confinement kind of broke John Merle mentally and supposedly left him an imbecile here. And while he was in mm. prison, he learned how to blacksmith and he did so once he got released until he died of TB in Pikeville, Tennessee. So I just kind of gave you like the quick run through of kind of the facts that we know about John Merle. However, why is he so popular? Why is his thumb being shown as a museum? Why does his (laughs) name come up so much more than really he kind of deserves? And it all has to do with the guy named Virgil Stewart. Virgil Stewart, and this article was really about uh, Virgil Stewart's contribution to the legend of John Merle. And we'll go into that a little bit because I'm going to read some of that article because Betsy Phillips does, she should be writing for drunk history. Like she's so good. And it's just like, I can't, I can't do it justice. So I'm going to read her. I'm going to cite her work. But before then, let's talk about how John Stewart wrote about, I mean, not John Stewart, but uh, Virgil Stewart. wrote about John, John uh, Stewart wrote about it too I know he could have <laughs> totally wrote about this okay so in 1835 John Stewart or god damn it <laughs> Virgil Stewart <laughs> wrote an account oh. of a slave rebellion plot sponsored by highwaymen Highwaymen and Northern Abolitionists. 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 Yeah. Okay. So that word. Which doesn't really make sense. So, because he's lumping the two in together and they're totally separate ideals and, Mm -hmm. and, 
you know, whatever. But he said on Christmas Day in 1835, Merle and his mystic clan planned to Ooh. incite an uprising in everyday slaveholding states by invoking the image of the Haitian Revolution. So the okay. Haitian Revolution is like the most successful slave rebellion in history. That was on everybody's mind, right? And so he's saying, you know, this was John's plan all along was to get everybody riled up and to create this chaos and to create this uprising against Southern whites. And then the uh, enslaved people involved in this Merle conspiracy would cause enough chaos to allow Merle to take over the South and have New Orleans as the center operation of his criminal empire. Take over the South. That's a very broad goal. Going for it. Exactly. So the whole South with, you know, the big headquarters in New Orleans. Stewart's account of his interactions with Merle was published in this pamphlet. 1835, this pamphlet came out. Stewart wrote this uh, pamphlet saying all of this stuff under the pseudonym Augusta Q. Walton Esquire. That was the name, (laughs) right? And he invented, you know, this fictitious background and profession for Augustus Q. Walton Esquire. And so since this was published, people started reading it and asking, who is this John Merle character? And then historians and stuff are going, what the fuck? You know, what's the validity of this, you know, publication? And it's, and even, you know, now it's been debated, although a lot of it's been debunked. It's obviously largely fictional, you know, Mural actually this, and he was kind of like baby faced, just kind of a ragamuffin person, minor horse thief, really horrible person who captured and then resold enslaved people. And, you know, at best, he would steal stuff with his brothers. And he was kind of an inept thief at best. And it's said to have bankrupt his father over the year for having to produce bail money because he kept getting caught. He wasn't good. So many have claimed that this pamphlet contributed largely to an event that happened afterward that they called the Merle excitement unfortunately (laughs) I'm going to leave off this kind of factual thing here that's very detailed about the Merle excitement and I'm going to read you Betsy's telling why is that reminded me of like a ride at Dollywood Yes. I mean, all, all pro- I love Dolly, but you know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about some, how about uh, Lake Winnipesoka? Anybody ever been there up in Tennessee? Lake anyway, Winnie. It reminds me of some, yeah, like some, a really bad theme park <laughs> ride. Oh, it's really or bad. Or a really good porno. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. That's all right. John Merrill and his mystic clan. The truth is something stranger and more horrible. And I can't do it all justice. There's actually a book that she referenced here called Flush Times and Fever Dreams, the story of capitalism and slavery in the age of Jackson. So during this time that this has happened, 1835, Andrew Jackson was our president. And we all know about bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. And we've also referenced Jackson as one of the people who went through and 
supposedly verified the bell witch mm-hmm. you know before he became president so strange right the short version of this book which is i'll put a link to the book is virgil stewart wanted to be a really well-respected southern gentleman in either tennessee or mississippi <laughs> he was kind of a wuss and a liar and a thief so well-respected wasn't in the cards for him in one somewhat failed effort to earn people's respect, he hunted down John Merle, a sick down on his luck, horse thief, suspected of slave stealing, and helped capture him. You know, Virgil Stewart was actually one of the men, one of the men that brought in John Merle, this horse thief and mm-hmm. enslaved person trade. Yeah. I don't even know what you call that. Um, it's human trafficking, basically. So he he brought him in, but he really, what he wanted uh, when bringing them in was, was the respect that he thought he was due. And because he didn't manage to like track down the slaves that Merle was suspected to stealing, people were less than impressed, you know, as he thought they should be. So he was like this person, he's like, I'm not getting enough credit for what I think, how grand I am. And so what he ended up doing well first of all he had to testify at the trial the trial was Mm. there in nashville and during the trial he embellished the story Mm. somewhat and made his deeds seem way more heroic and people in jackson at the time when the trial was there yeah maybe jackson i don't know jackson tennessee Jackson, Tennessee, near Nashville. Nashville people, you'll have to like let me know. Or Tennessee people, you have to let me know. So the people in Jackson, <laughs> where the trial was, was like whatever Stuart. And so obviously he like had this grandiose thing where he built himself up. Since he didn't get the enough or the enough respect that he thought he deserved, he wrote a book or this pamphlet under the pseudonym, and he cast himself as the great hero. <laughs> and a daring capture of the great land pirate and head of the nefarious, wide-reaching mystic clan, John Merrill. Everyone in Tennessee who had seen Merrill in real life thought this was hilarious. Mm -hmm. She says, dude was ragtag at best. He was no prince of the underworld. But in Mississippi, white people were all, (laughs) oh, damn, did you hear about this mystic clan? And their great god conspiracy theories in the 1800s then the white people of mississippi spent the summer of 1835 killing the fuck out of each other and innocent black people oh my god that they were secretly members of the mystic clan oh whoa like you did they think it was happening in jackson mississippi they thought it was happening everywhere right (laughs) They thought it was happening everywhere. So she says, like you thought the Salem oh witch trials were bad. That's nothing compared to the mystic clan trials. People oh were hanged God. left and right. People were whipped. People were run out of the state, shot, beat what? with rods. Counties went to war with each other, all while a committee presided over trials and execution oh in God. order to make sure that no innocent people were killed. Everyone killed was innocent. And of course, because there was no mystic clan, this was all fiction 
written down by some egomaniac who thought that people weren't giving him, you know, his the respect that he thought he deserved. So the whole rest of the country was going, oh, hey, Governor of Mississippi, perhaps you want to stop all your slave owners from killing each other over the shitty book. Mm-hmm. Anyone with two brain cells can tell you it's just lies and more lies. And the answer, <laughs> the governor's answer was like, she does the like, oh, like the, I don't know, whatever emoji, right? So people in Mississippi wrote to Nashville and were like admonishing people in Nashville, you know, saying, hey, y'all need to start killing each other. We tried to point out that Stuart, (laughs) she says, she says like Nashville was trying to point out that Stuart was full of shit, but Mississippi was having none of it. So oh my God. after a while, it became apparent that there was no slave insurrection in the works. The committee disbanded oh and God. everyone pretended like they just saved themselves from doom. Although <sighs> the extrajudicial murders of a bunch of people, you know, so they murdered a bunch of people and they were like trying to get everybody else because they thought that the slaves were fixing to rise up and be in control and it was all due to oh, Virgil Stewart gross. saying, hey, look what I saved you from by just capturing this lowly, sickly little horse thief dude who had nothing to do with it. Like, if you look up John Merle, I mean, it attributes him with so much. So now I'm going to read you the facts, <laughs> or not the facts, but what happened, you know, that's not as entertaining. The, um, you know, in 1835, disturbances started to happen in red light districts in Nashville and Memphis and Natchez, Mississippi. 20 slaves and 10 men were hanged oh, after man. confessing to complicity in Merle's plot. In Vicksburg, Mississippi, an angry mob decided to expel all the professional gamblers from the town. And based on a rumor that the gamblers are part of like this mystic clan plot. And of course, the gamblers were like, you know, resisted. And it actually ended up with five gamblers mm-hmm. being hanged by a mob. So it was all mob rule. Uh, similar panics were happening all around. It was, you know, it was the conspiracy. It even happened like Huntsville, Alabama. Alabama and New Orleans, Louisiana, all created these committees dedicated to identifying Merle's conspirators, the great Western land pirate. All of this shit happened. And he was in jail. He had been in jail for six years and in 1835. So again, all of this was based off of the ego of one man and his Merle excitement pamphlet that got just blown out of proportion. And people people are so afraid that enslaved people would rise up against wow. them like they did in, in Haiti. Obviously, all of this didn't happen. And how the thumb got into the Oh no, I want to know though. A bit of a question mark (laughs) on the deathbed Merle did like admit to being on his deathbed he died in like 1844 at the age of 38 he admitted to being guilty of most of the crimes he was charged with which is basically stealing enslaved people and reselling them but he said he never murdered anybody and you know he died a very kind of lonely death um of tb of, of you know because he was kind of a sickly person after he was buried he's buried at the smyrna first united methodist church in tennessee parts of his grave were dug up 
and things were stolen his corpse was half eaten by scavenging hog his head was separated from his torso and pit clean um what this is turned out i know that's how the finger got there and that's what it says his skull is missing to this day but one of his thumbs is in possession of the Tennessee State Museum. So that's the end of how one man's ego and conspiracy theory got out of hand and multiple people were murdered. And So this they... has been happening since the 1800s or before. Just the internet made it's it a cautionary... faster and bigger. Don't believe everything yeah. you read by cautionary Virgil Stewart y'all. or Augustus <laughs> Esquire or whatever. <laughs> His thumb, though. And that's the legend of John Merle. Who probably he never asked for any of this at all. Why specifically? <laughs> I know. His thumb? Why would And why put it on display? Like it's even his thumb. Maybe it's his right. I was wondering how they knew. I just I don't know. Some people. They're all. They're all. They're. It's a douche. What you know, writing about kind of another douche. They were all. They were all horrible. But you know, once people get a hold of it and committees are formed. Once a committee's formed, there's no going back. Oh, that's amazing. Where did you find this? I just stumbled across her. I was thinking. I was thinking the same thing because I I like kind of go through a list of the states that we haven't done in a while and i know we've done you know tennessee more recently than uh, arkansas i was thinking about arkansas too but i was typed in tennessee i forgot whatever (laughs) and i ran across an article i was like this is the best article i've i've read in a long time it's like this whole thing with her using like the little emoji of going "Ah, i don't know but her thing of saying oh damn did you hear that this mystic clan and their great plot to incite our slaves to murder us i mean that's like a line straight out of drunk history oh my gosh thumbs up you know if so if anybody has any insight into why the thumb why we're all just pins and needles fascinated thank you for listening Uh, (laughs) we appreciate y'all let us let you go go now that's all right we'll talk to you later (laughs) bye y'all Man, John Merrill is like branded his shit. (laughs) He's got (laughs) HT branded. No pun intended. Go, John Merrill. Thumbs up. You're terrible. Go, John Merrill. You're a horrible person. I just, it's like, when I read this shit, I'm just like, and, and y'all know us, we hate reading, like, we know how mm. horrible this health has been and, and in the past. We know how horrible the world has been and is. And it, it's so hard for us to mm. read some of this stuff because we have a lot of empathy. But some of this shit, y'all, so funny. So tragically funny.
Oh, so good. Thank you.